This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Signs, signs, everywhere signs. Well, except in Hamilton. We don't have any. Just about every other city that I have gone to, and we travel extensively now as our family and friends start to spread out in, into places like Toronto and Barrie and Collingwood and other cities like this, and you do a lot of traveling on the major highways. And there's the city for Burlington. There's one for Chatham-Kent. There's one for London. There's one for Toronto. There's one for Burlington. Hamilton? No. No, we, we don't do that. But that may change, depending on what happens at City Council today, uh, depending on this initiative. It's not quite where we thought it was going to be, but it might be a good start anyway. Uh, the potential for putting a large sign, a Hamilton sign, right in the forecourt at Hamilton City Hall. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, is one of the driving forces behind this initiative. She joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Laura, how are you doing this morning? I'm great, Bill. Let's let maybe give us a historical perspective on this before we talk about the the plan that's before City Council for today, because this has been a a, a pet peeve of yours and and something <laughs> that you really got behind for a number of years now. Absolutely, and it came up very organically. I travel around the province a lot uh, for my client work at Power Group, and I started to notice that many communities had signs that showed off their civic pride. So more than just the highway population sign, they had signs that sort of drew you into their community. So if you're going along the 401, for instance, you may not be able to see the town, but they put up this little sign to try to entice you to come in and visit, see their lakefront or see their waterfront. And you, we saw Oshawa has a beautiful flower garden where they have the Canadian flag and the words Oshawa. Just everywhere I was driving, even up north, small little towns, they found a way to just show you their pride. Sometimes it's just letters, which is also effective. You know, look at the Toronto Nathan Phillips Square sign they put up around Pan Am. People from around the world flock to that sign. Tons of photographs are done of that sign. It's just, you know, something that most communities, every community that I've seen does. And so I put on Twitter, uh, you know, why doesn't such an iconic city as Hamilton, with such a legendary history and, and you know, so much pride, we're such a proud city in so many ways, why don't we have a, a sign with the big words Hamilton, anything? And people picked up on the hashtag on Twitter, Time for Sign, and they started to send me photos from all over the place where they're traveling in front of these signs. Uh, there were photos I got from all over, all over the place, all these Hamiltonians. It was really cool. And, so, and, and by the way, it's, because I know some of the, the, the derogatory comments and some of the naysayers have said, well, oh, you really need to know that you're in Hamilton. It's not just about identifying where you are. It's, it's actually a matter of promoting the city. Well, that's the whole thing, right? So I do marketing and PR, as you know. And this idea of best-kept secret and, stuff is... And you're, never, and you're never off the clock when you're doing it either, even when you're no. driving. Well, because you just can't help yourself, right? And no, no, no. I was not speeding and driving. So I'm coming in trouble. <laughs> but when I'm looking around, you know. And she so doth protest too much, but okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I would never tweet and drive. <laughs> I actually bought a vehicle where I could do all that stuff virtually, except Twitter, of course. You can do text messaging. Anyway, um, I'm a safe driver. But here's the thing. I'm driving around. Everyone's looking at these things, and we're going, wow, this is just, this is just crazy. Why doesn't Hamilton have one? And so as I started to look into it, lo and behold, the city had done a lot of work on this back around post-amalgamation time. They'd spent money on it. They'd done consultations with the community. They'd even had a vote on a design concept years ago. And so it seemed to me that uh, this was obviously not my idea. It was, a, it was something that got stalled somehow. So on the advice of a counselor, I went to City Hall and just said, These, this has been the response. Can we get this done before Pan Am Games? 
seemed like it was a, a tight time frame bill, but if we're going to have extra traffic in the city, why not, you know, sort of schedule it for then? And as you know, the conversation, um, it fell into an election year and it, it was, you know, punted around a little bit like a political football, but part of the considerations around it were significant and valid. And that was at the time it was going to be a city expenditure up to the price tag of about 230000 And that seems like a lot of money. That's what a lot of people might pay for a house. Uh, and in fact, Stony Creek sign, I believe Councillor Clark said at the time, had cost more years ago when they did it. So there's a real cost to doing these signs. But it did seem like a lot of money. Hamilton has a lot of other important competing priorities for tax dollars. And so it stalled. And uh, I've been in touch with Mayor Fred since he became the mayor, and I just said this idea is stalled, but it's still necessary. How can our city not have a, a sign where when we bring family and friends from around the world to our city and we take them downtown and we take them around, how can we not have a sign that they take photos with for their travels, their postcards, their Facebook posts? It's a necessary marketing tool and a sign of civic pride. So he has been working on it uh, and made the announcement that, he wanted to do it as a 150th Canada project. And because of the timing of that, an, another good timing, um, and a lot of things in marketing, as you know, is about timing. Mm-hmm. Because of that, there's been some very generous donors in the community who have who are starting to step up and say, hey, no, this is something that we need. And the mayor has said it will be all covered by private donations. So there's no cost to the taxpayer. Uh, so to me, it's a win-win. And I'm looking forward to hearing council discuss it. But it seems to me as though... Uh, it is, as you said off the top, not exactly what I thought it was going to be, but it's a great start, and it's just about civic pride. Well, let me ask you, since you you really were the one that brought this back onto the front burner and started talking about this, and uh, is 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 this instead of the 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 gateway sign that you talked about, or is this, as you look at it, a good first step towards maybe going and progressing to that stage? I think it's a first step. You know, it's it's it came from the the original concept way back. If you look back at the city hall documents back to around amalgamation, was to have some sort of a strong identifier of the city. And it was the initial design that was voted on was just the big letters, Hamilton. I think Hamilton is so iconic, you don't need to get much fussier than that. <laughs> you know, just big proud Hamilton letters, I think, is, is pretty a pretty good indicator of our city. Uh, and so that was long before Toronto put up their sign or some other places put up similar signs. Uh, we had that design. And, and I, I'm cool with that. I mean, it's Hamilton. Just saying it was pride is, is something that I think resonates. So was it supposed to be at um, some gateways to the city in terms of road entries on the highways? That was the initial concept, and that was certainly what I was remarking on when I was driving around the province. But when I look at Nathan Phillips Square, for instance, and how popular that sign is downtown Toronto, and I think about when I drive into Hamilton, like so much of the traffic off the highway, you come into the main entrance. And as you're driving down Main Street, the City Hall forecourt is sort of a big open space area that catches your attention pretty early on. It is a gateway to the downtown. It's a gateway just before that, those beautiful buildings on the corner of Main and James. And so as a gateway to the city in terms of our, our core, I think it's a great location. And maybe uh, when people realize, you know, just how much this does for marketing and, and potentially for drawing people to the city, that it might be brought out to other iterations into other gateways that we think of more traditionally on the highway. So I, I look at it, Bill, as, as a good first start. And again, just a necessary marketing tool for Hamilton. We've spent a, a good deal of time talking about uh, the, the promotion and the tourism market here in the city. 
and, and, and I think a lot of people here don't understand just how important that is. But talk to us for a couple of seconds, Laura. It, put your power group hat on for a second here about branding. It's a, a phrase that a lot of people hear these days, and it's such a key part in, in marketing, at, well, well, in this particular case, a city. It is. It's extremely important. So basically, it's like if you have a store, but you don't put a shingle up in front of your store. You don't put up a, a name on your store. You don't put up a sign. Right, So people may know of your store by happenstance. They may know of it by reputation. They may kind of stumble across it because they're walking down that street. But why on earth wouldn't you have a sign, even if it's just the name of your store? It's just, it, it is something that is just a no-brainer with any kind of marketing. And it's the same for cities. If you think about it, you want to draw investment. You want to draw tourism. You want to draw all these things that help to offset the local house taxes that we pay, the, you know, the, the burden on, the, on our taxpayers here in Hamilton. You want to bring money in, just like customers, into your city. And so having a sign that they can take photos on, they can, you know, this is what I think will happen. You put up this beautiful Hamilton sign, all the tourists that come downtown when they visit the city, because as a tourist, you usually go to the city cores whenever you visit a city, mm-hmm. and they'll take pictures in front of it. They'll put it on social media as part of their trip experience. Then that generates retweets and exposures and clicks around the world. It works as an actual marketing tool. So it's a no-brainer for any business, and the city operates as a business to bring in customers, and we want to bring in investment as our sort of customers. Uh, It's a revenue tool for the city to bring people in and to bring attention to the city. And it also then, because of social media, has such a wonderful exponential factor to it, right? Uh, For all the other things that Tourism Hamilton does, and they've been doing some great stuff lately, the idea of having this this big, beautiful Hamilton sign in these tweets and these posts that people put on Facebook and Instagram uh, to their followers or their friends and family around the world is just a wonderful way of generating positive awareness for our beautiful city. And, and we have landmarks here that you and I and other Hamiltonians are aware of, but but let's be frank about it. Think outside the, the little box in which we live right now. If you were to put a picture of Hamilton City Hall or, or, or the, the Ron Joyce Center or First Ontario Center or even Tim Hortons Field, anything like that, and and somebody from you know South Dakota is looking at that. They're not going to know that's Hamilton. They're not going to know it. But an identifiable characteristic like this is something that stands out. And uh, I'm looking at this. I'm a glasses half full sort of guy. I'm thinking, hey, maybe some of these people that are running around on the falls or the waterfalls right now might go to downtown instead. It's a lot safer to have your picture <laughs> taken and do your selfie in front of that. It, it's it's a branding exercise, and it does matter, and it does bring people to the uh, to the core, for instance, and to the city itself. And the, and what's what's bad about that? Well, the thing about it is, you know, nothing's ever going to be pleasing everybody. And and there are always going to be uh, critiques of any kind of design, of any kind of people. You know, uh, art is very subjective. We all have a different aesthetic, and I respect that. You know, people um, want things a certain way. People express their civic pride in different ways. What we do know from the research that the mayor's office has done and from certainly my own background is that when you have, especially in social media, something that's iconographic, something that's photographable, it tends to get more attention, to your point, right? Uh, Hamilton has a lot of really awesome landmarks, and I'm so excited about what's happening at the waterfront in downtown and all the historical sites in the city. And our new city hall, it was a great project to make that city hall look the way it is. Putting the word Hamilton in front of it just works in marketing. It just helps people to identify it. It gives people a sense of civic pride. I drive by the front court of City Hall all the time. We have a nice City Hall. Our front court looks a little bare to me most of the time. And the idea of having this this 
beautiful Hamilton sign lit up, you know, on those cold winter days when everything is dark and gray. I think it's fantastic. So it won't appeal to everyone, Bill, but this is not costing the taxpayers a dime. This is generous Hamiltonians who love their city, who have the the privilege, the opportunity to be able to donate to something like this, uh, making offers to do it. And, and I just love that. And PJ Mercanti said to me at the time three years ago, wow, um, it didn't pass council, but if you're ever working on this in the future, you know, please let me know. And so he was approached by the mayor, and he has been fantastic in reaching out. And I think that that's what this is about. This is about civic pride. It won't please everybody, but it's not costing anybody anything. And the benefits, as we've just specified, are numerous. Now, listen, i got to ask you about time frame here, because uh, Mayor Eisenberger suggested he'd like to have this thing done sooner than later uh, because of the Canada 150 celebrations. Uh, can you raise enough money in that time to, to be able to do this? And, and, and I guess part B to that, is, is there really a time sensitivity to this? I think it's great to have things within the 150 year. That's the intent of it. That's the appeal of it. That's what the mayor stated as his objective. And frankly, uh, there's been tremendous goodwill and support and positive response. So when the mayor says that this will be fully paid for by tax, by uh, not by the taxpayers, but by donations from proud Hamilton um, leaders or business people or private donations, it, it'll be paid for by Hamiltonians. And he wants it done in this year. And I see no reason why it won't be. He has sourced out uh, a local designer who's known for public art and they've designed it. So I don't see any obstacles to getting it done. It has to go through council. It has to go through the Heritage Committee. It has to be, um, you know, fully supported. But in terms of the financial cost to taxpayers, that will be covered. The mayor has made that guarantee that it's going to come from private donations. And the time frame, I don't have specifics on the date, but I'm sure it'll be a moment of celebration when it happens. And and certainly the stated goal is to do it within the 150-year window. Well, it seems like a no-brainer uh, to me and to an awful lot of other people in the community, too, and a win-win for the city. Uh, it goes to council uh, in about 25, 30 minutes, I guess, it's going to be on the agenda. And, uh, well, they never cease to amaze us, do they, Laura? So we'll see what they say about it. Uh, I am an eternal optimist. <laughs> I'm patient. You have to be. <laughs> you have to be. Listen, good luck, and thanks for all the great work you've done on this, uh, you and PJ Mercanti on this so far. And hopefully council will see the wisdom to uh, move forward on this, too. Thanks for this, Laura. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, it's time for the Mayor's Town Hall with Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. And, of course, uh, we will open the lines up in just a couple of minutes for your calls and your comments for Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing. 905-645-3221, star 9900 is a toll-free number on the cell phone. You can reach us by email, bkelly at 900chml.com. And, of course, on Twitter, that's CHML Bill Kelly. Your questions, your comments for Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring in uh, just a couple of minutes. Uh, good to see you again. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bill. It's good to be back. Listen, I'm going to ask you, I, I just had a conversation with Comrade Zarini about housing and uh, and the the impact it's having on the, on the Hamilton-Burlington market. And it's one of those uh, interesting ideas that you and I talked about this uh, when we were at the Economic Summit a couple of weeks ago at the RBG, that uh, there are so many uh, similarities and so many, uh, I guess, uh, situations where Hamilton and Burlington have such common interests, uh, such as the real estate board, such as chambers of commerce, et cetera, like that, that there's so much going on between these two. And, and the markets are two very different ideas, but at the same time, there's an awful lot of similarities with these two. And one of the things that, that Conrad just talked about was about housing stock and availability 
And uh, he talked about the impact of the Greenbelt legislation. And I know that's a contentious point for an awful lot of people, that many people, I like to think most people, are, are in some way, shape, or form supportive of the Greenbelt. I think it's been very effective, and it's a great piece of legislation. But the, you have to look at the balance sheet and say, okay, on the other side of the coin, it has limited the possibility for further expansion, for further housing uh, stock, et cetera, like this. And it creates a few challenges. You know, unlike Hamilton, which still has lots of uh, greenfield, suburban-type development potential, uh, Burlington hardly has any. Yeah. And so we're, we're caught in this in a big way. Um, and the 50% of Burlington is in the green belt, and that's the area of North Aldershot and north of the Dundas uh, 407 corridor. And it contains the Niagara Escarpment, uh, the Bruce Trail, uh, the Mount Nemo Plateau, uh, some, you know, some wonderful natural features. Um, but, you know, so the reality is, is that we don't have any more room to build those traditional suburban type developments or very little room. Yeah, but people want them. I and mean, people want them. People want to live in North Burlington. I hear that all the time. People, people do want to live in, you know, traditional suburban developments, the, the traditional single dwellings. And it's tough. It is very tough for the younger people in our community uh, to find a single detached dwelling uh, that provides them with a backyard where they want to raise their children uh, because of the, t- the tremendous cost. When you look at the average, the median, the median income in Burlington is probably about one hundred and ten thousand dollars, which is higher than most, um, one hundred and ten thousand per household, and the average or the median price for single detached homes is about eight hundred and fifty or eight hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. So that is out of the reach of, of most people that have an income of one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars, unless you. Go to the bank of grandma or granddad or, or <laughs> bank of mom or dad. It's very difficult. So, but when I ask residents, you know, does it make sense for us to want to expand our our, our um, development into the greenbelt area? Most people are are not on for that. They they appreciate the quality of life that is provided to all of us in the region because of the uniqueness of the green space. And the green belt in the city of Burlington. So uh, th- these are these are issues that we wrestle with all the time, and, and recognizing that we are going to be continuing to grow in our urban area uh, around certain around our GO stations in our downtown. And you know we have the discussions about height and density and how much yeah, well, is too we'll much. We'll get into and, that in a few minutes because I know you guys talked about that. And so at council. it. it um, you know, these are difficult issues we have to wrestle with, and there's no uh, clear-cut path. I mean, you can be critical of any any path we take on this. And uh, so we have to balance. We have to juggle, you know, a number of different competing interests uh, uh, to make sure that we grow appropriately and grow responsibly well, going we, forward. And, and we're doing that in a better way. I think, you know, this generation is smarter than the, the generation before that just because we know more. I mean... Uh, you know, growth was done, I don't want to say in an irresponsible manner, back in the 30s, 40s, as cities were expanding, uh, especially post-World War II. Well, we had lots of land. Yeah, it was we just we, keep going. We, just we keep... had lots of land. Oil was cheap. We didn't really appreciate the impact of burning fossil fuels on the environment. So, in the, in, And those I, were the days when we were still dumping stuff into the bay, too. You know, well, wa- exactly. Human waste and everything. Exactly. Ah, there's lots of room out there. But, but post-war, I mean, it was the go-go years. And, and, you know, car companies are buying up bus companies so they get people to, to use their cars more. And now we're trying to go the other way, trying to encourage people to use their cars less and use other forms of transportation more. So we're trying to retrofit um, areas – and cities and towns that were built for the automobile because of cheap land and cheap oil. And neither one's true anymore. Um, so we're wrestling with this uh, conversion to be more 
urban-like. Certainly in Burlington, we're still a suburban community, but we, we're going to be more urban-like going forward. It's an interesting way that uh, the that, that city's growing. There's a phrase that, that a lot of cities have used, uh, Burlington certainly, and, and I think Hamilton's on board with that now too, and that's called smart growth. And in other words, instead of simply arbitrarily saying, yeah, I'll go ahead and build a housing survey over there, it's uh, let's see the impact that's going to have, first of all, on the environment. Let me see what your plan's like too. What are you going to build out there? Uh, don't just build row and row on housing. You know, are you going to put a park in there? Are you going to put walking paths in there? Uh, what about accessibility, things of this nature? There's there's a lot more demand. And, and at first blush, i got to tell you, I know there was a pushback from some people saying, oh, come on, that's just going to make it even cost prohibitive. I think most people are on side with the, the idea that that's how the community should be developed now. Yeah, we, we have an interesting piece of property that we discussed this week at council meeting, uh, and this is the Tremaine Dundas lands right at the northwest corner of Tremaine and Dundas, and it goes all the way up to uh, the 407. It's about 70 acres or 70 hectares. I can't remember, but it's a, it's, a, it's a chunk of land that we have left for development, and I was making the comments at committee and council that this is a great opportunity for us to create a sustainable development like no other and have the potential and create the potential for a net zero development where we can have solar panels on all the homes. We can, we can have all the technology in the homes to minimize energy consumptions and minimize the creation and the emission of greenhouse gas uh, emissions. We, all the technology is there now and we have to build differently going forward if we want to do something about climate change. Well, it's starting to happen, and uh, it's probably, uh, when I look at some of the stats here, uh, go- only going to increase for the city of Burlington, uh, because you got some more good news once again from Money Sense magazine that says you're one of the best cities in, in which to live here in this country. So people are going to be saying, hey, hey, honey, Google uh, Burlington. Uh, see what's going on there, availability, job opportunities, housing, et cetera, like this. It's a good news story, uh, and this is becoming a tradition with you guys now. Yeah, it, it's the fifth year in a row, and every year at this time, just before the ratings come out, I get a little bit of an angst because we're always <laughs> our ratings have always been good for the last, uh, last many years. Um, and uh, we've been rated once again as the second be- or the best medium-sized city to live in the country. Those are cities between 100,000 and 500,000. Uh, the second best city in Ontario and the ninth best city in Canada. So we went from second best in Canada to ninth best in Canada. Some people would say we fell in the ratings. I would say actually we didn't fall. It's that the Money Sense Magazine uh, ranking system expanded to include many more small towns than they've ever before. So a lot of small towns were included for the first time that ranked a little bit ahead, ahead of Burlington, and that's why we're ninth and not uh, second overall. But it's still darn good. We're the you know the second best city to live in Ontario, according uh, to Money Sense Magazine. But we're fortunate in this area in southern Ontario. It, you know, we live in a great area. We live in a great country. Uh, you know, by definition, these are some of the greatest areas to live in the world. And and it's not just Burlington, but, you know, it's Hamilton and Oakville and Halton Hills and Milton. They're all great, uh, great communities. So what, what are people looking for? What makes Burlington rank as high as it does year after year after year? What are the amenities that, that attract people to this community? So one of the, the key attractions or one of the key reasons why we score so well as the best city to live in Canada, on, on the best cities to live in Canada, uh, ranking is the fact that we are in Halton region with Oakville, Milton, and Halton Hills. We do have the Halton Regional Police Force, and we do have we are the safest regional municipality in Canada, measured by Crime Severity Index. Uh, we have very low crime rates on a relative basis, so that is a major attractive feature to uh, the city of Burlington. Uh, we rank very good on weather. 
uh, the whole Halton region ranks well. We rank seventh in, uh, across the country in weather. Uh, we have sort of a Goldilocks growth. We don't have too much growth. We don't have too little growth. We're sort of <laughs> right where we, we, we should be, and we get good marks for that. Uh, we get good marks for access to educational institutions and access to, to the medical profession. Uh, we get good marks for um, percentage, of the, uh, percentage of people employed in arts and culture. We have a, a, you know, a good, decent arts and culture uh, community. And there we have a good feeling of community overall that uh, many people that come to Burlington like it because we have the big city amenities. We're close to Hamilton, close to Toronto, close to Niagara, um, but we have uh, a small town feel. So there's a, there's a number of different uh, uh, benefits to the to the city of Burlington. One of the things that's always impressed me, though, and I want to go back to this idea of smart growth, uh, is because there's there's a template that cities should be using. And I, I found this going back when I was on council, going to a, uh, a number of different conferences uh, in North America. So it's not just the Hamilton, Burlington, or Toronto area that I was talking to. I was talking to council representatives from places like Milwaukee and Chicago and Boston and other places. And they say you got to be able to stick to your plan uh, when it comes to growth, and say you know what, Mister or Ms. Developer, that's a great idea, but you can't put it there. That's that's not what we want there in our community. Or if you want to put it here, it's got to look like this because that's what the rest of the community looks like. Right. And and let's face it, there are some communities that uh, well they they they're very malleable when it comes to that. Well, okay, we'll let you do it this time. You guys in Burlington for generations now have stuck to your guns and said no, this is how we're going to do this and. You know, because I can remember when I was a, a, just a young kid, I mean, going up around Appleby and Guelph Line, anywhere north of the, the Queen E, and especially up around Highway 5, there's nothing but farm field. But it's grown the way you're supposed to. You've got multi-residential near main arteries, and it flows into single-family residential away from there. Uh, you've got the commercial districts where they're supposed to be at main intersections like this. That's that's the template, and it's it's almost like you could take a picture of Burlington and say, this is how you're supposed to grow. Well, I think we, we've got some great examples of some great decisions been made, and we have some other examples that maybe aren't, aren't aren't as good. But overall, I think we've done a good job of planning the community and making sure that uh, uh, where people live, there's access to uh, you know commercial amenities what they need. There's access to parks and green space, um, and access to recreational facilities and so on and so forth. So yeah, overall, I think we've done a very good job of planning our city. And so obviously, money sense senses that as well, and that's uh, that's one of the big pluses for this. Now, this is a great feather in the cap for the city. As you mentioned, five years in a row you've done this. Uh, how do you use this? How do you use this to, to enhance Burlington's reputation? Uh, uh, when you got a guy like Keith Hoey from the Chamber of Commerce, and I know he works hand-in-hand uh, hand with the Economic Development Department of the city right now, uh, how do you how do you... I don't, I don't want to use the term monetize this, but take full advantage of this to try to promote Burlington. So we look at our, – our biggest economic development strategy, or one of them, is promoting the quality of life that we have in the, in the city of Burlington. So the best cities ranking with money sense is tangible measurement of the quality of life uh, that we have in the city. So that's how we use it. We use it when we're talking to uh, businesses that are looking about looking to come to Burlington. We talk about the quality of life. We talk about the fact that, uh, you know, you could be in the in the business areas along the QEW um, one minute and then within 15 minutes you could be golfing in North Burlington. Uh, or you could be within 10 minutes or less, you can be down having a nice stroll down the waterfront. Um, and you can be in, in downtown Burlington. So we promote the proximity of... Uh, amenities and, and things to do 
um, that promotes to a healthy lifestyle and promotes to high quality life. And obviously, promoting ourselves as the uh, the second best city to live in Ontario, the best mid-sized city in Canada, helps promoting that quality of life and making Burlington a desirable place to bring business as well as to live. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, uh, opponents of the uh, incoming LRT system are still at it. A group is pushing for a reevaluation of transit options, including bus rapid transit, and a look at the environmental assessment process uh, for the province. Uh, it's an interesting twist to an ongoing story. Uh, John Best uh, writes about this in the current edition of the uh, the Bay Observer. Joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. How are you doing this morning, John? Hi, how are you doing, Bill? Uh, great. Listen, i got to tell you, I mentioned uh, just in the preamble before the 11 o'clock news we were going to be talking about this LRT issue, and and all of a sudden I get this, this plethora of emails from people on both sides of the issue. Who could have predicted that would happen? God, I don't know, but it doesn't surprise me, Bill. Uh, the, the passion is still there. Nobody wants to put this on the back burner, do they? No, they don't. Uh, I, I mean, you can you can quibble about the actual numbers, but... You know the, the 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 poll that was done by Forum shows that this community is is very badly divided on the issue, and and in fact, I don't think anybody can argue that the plurality in the community is opposed to the project, or at least has significant concerns. So, it doesn't surprise me that that people are not happy. Uh, they're they're not uh, going to go away, and uh, uh, you know they're, they're not going to go away. I guess until the thing gets built, but. Yeah, I, I I fully understand it. There's there's a real uh, some of the calls I get. There there's definitely a real sense of alienation uh, between the people uh, that are concerned about the project and and uh, their view of uh, of how council has handled the matter. Well, this is an interesting piece that's in the Bay Observer, and uh, and I got to tell you, John, uh, not that you and I talked about this, but. It, uh, it didn't come totally as a, as a surprise to me because I'd run into a couple of the uh, people that have been vocal opponents to this project, uh, Carol Lysich and a couple of others a few weeks ago, that suggested that they were doing some homework and, and trying to get some outside opinions on how to approach this. And, and I'm wondering if this is part of this. Talk to us about the, this piece and, and about this effort right now on behalf of uh, – this is a lawyer who's been hired, I guess, to work with uh, with the opponents of this right now. What are they looking for? Well, first of all, uh, you know, a lot of this, and I think everybody understands, it, it's a long shot. But you know, if you're if you're community engaged, you uh, you use all the weapons in your arsenal, I guess. What they're essentially, through the lawyer, are asking for is the council uh, pause the process long enough to give proper consideration to alternatives, uh, one of which is the bus rapid transit, obviously, which is the alternative that uh, that that in the second submission, uh, it's argued that it never really got a fair chance. It was killed so early in the project uh, for consideration that uh, really it, it never got any kind of a look by council. And it was really knocked off the table before anybody anywhere, including council, was paying any attention. So council does have the power to um, to review uh, alternatives. There, uh, the process under which uh, this EA went forward is a is, is called TPAP. But the bottom line is it's a fast-tracking 
anything to do. And that's with an transit. acronym for Transit Project Assignment Process. That's it. Now, what's yeah. that? What's that mean? Basically, a rubber stamp. Uh, well, uh, there are those who suggest uh, it is. In fact, uh, one lawyer told me that uh, it's a, an environmental process. It's a non-environmental process dis- uh, disguised as one. But what you know, the view behind it is the transit projects are inherently good for the environment, and therefore they shouldn't be held up in the same kind of process that, say, a, a thirty-story condominium should get held up in. So there's there's some logic behind trying to fast track transit projects, but what really it comes down to is that uh, the proponent, in this case, the city and MetroLinks. They, they can, it's sort of a self-assessment checklist, so you, you decide what you think the possible environmental impacts of the project are, and then you advise uh, the government what you're going to do about them, if anything. So it, it's a pretty loosey-goosey uh, process, and um, if, if this thing had been subjected to a more complete EA, the kind of EA that most other projects are subjected to, you would be obliged to thoroughly examine alternatives to the project uh, and and justify eliminating them. And that's what wasn't done here with uh, bus rapid transit. Okay, here's a question. <laughs> I, I read the story this morning in the, in the Bay Observer, and the first thing that came to my mind, notwithstanding your position on LRT, whether you're for it or against it, that's, that's inconsequential at this stage, but there's a question of a process here. And and this whole idea about this, uh, as you call it, the TPAP, this transit project assignment process, as I read it, and I, I think you've just uh, reiterated what I was thinking, basically means if John Best puts a proposal before the government, the government says, well, John, what are the weaknesses on this and how are you going to fix it? In other, where's the objectivity? Well, there is no objectivity, and uh, I'm not sure what the thinking was at the time uh, the process was initiated. Uh, the timing of it, I think, came around the the same time that Metrolinx was being established and uh, the, the government had made a policy decision that they were going to invest billions in transit. And uh, look, I mean, a lot of that makes all kinds of sense. Uh, I think we all agree that we need uh, significantly improved transit. But uh, it does open the door for abuse uh, if uh, someone wishes to abuse the process. And in the case of Hamilton, uh, there, there's no question from my own research I can see that bus rapid transit was manipulated out of the system so early in the process on the strength really, and this is ridiculous, but it really, if you if you look at the actual point at which bus rapid transit was taken off the table, it was on the strength of about 150 people showing up at a, a series of open houses and uh, the, you know, you can imagine the, the initial circulation of uh, invitations to these open houses uh, clearly captured a pro-LRT crowd much more than it would capture, you know, the average person that's just come home from work. And, you know, it, I mean, it really, the, the manipulation of the process is really quite evident. And it's, uh, you know, I'm sad to see it, frankly, because I think if there had been a a more robust uh, examination of bus rapid transit earlier on, we could have avoided a lot of what's happened here in the last five or six years. Well, I know you've written about this extensively over the last number of years, and and you and I have talked about this, but so have others, John, that have indicated that, again, whether they're for or against LRT, the process itself, uh, put it this way, has a bit of an odor to it. Uh, And some are suggesting that even in the early days, 
and I, I think I was one of the ones who talked about this on the show or even in those early days, it seemed to me as if some staff members had a conclusion and worked backwards to try to validate that conclusion and, and weren't going to let anything get in the way. And and that's unfortunate because I think it sullied the waters and maybe turned an awful lot of people off the project before it even got on, on track. Well, let me give you an example uh, that, that would illustrate that, Bill. Um, after... This is after BRT was eliminated. So from now on, uh, staff's uh, task at that point back around 2008, 2009, was was, uh, doing uh, public consultation. But what it really was was public consultation aimed at validating LRT aggressively. Because uh, and, and the reason for that was partly to persuade Hamilton public, obviously. But the other reason was because at that point, Metrolinx was very ambivalent about whether Hamilton was going to get LRT or BRT. They were quite neutral on the issue. And clearly Hamilton wanted LRT, or at least this faction that was in this uh, transit special transit office that had been set up. Uh, they, they, they didn't want any BRT, so they, they did a, about a 1,600 um, uh, respondent uh, questionnaire uh, and again, uh, when you look at the people that were on the list that were invited to respond to the question, it wasn't a, 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 a random sample. It was invited responses. Uh, the, the, the universe that was a, that was sort of drawn up was was clearly people that would tend to favor LRT. But the bottom line is, uh, that, so they got 1,600 responses. It was overwhelmingly in favor of LRT. But only 25% of the respondents were actual regular transit users. Most of the respondents were infrequent or non-transit users. And to your point about the system, get somebody putting their thumb on the scales, that fact was omitted in a staff report to council. And the only reason it got picked up was because then they hired another consultant who they wanted to you know, show that even under objective uh, analysis that the public was wildly in favor of LRT. So they hired a consultant to examine what the city had done in terms of public consultation, and the consultant felt compelled to include it in his report. Otherwise, we would not have known that those of those 1,600 people, only 25% uh, had much familiarity with the bus system or the transit system in Hamilton. So there's an example of fudging and, you know, omission yeah, you know this. The whole thing is quite disturbing from a process standpoint. And and the the letter from the lawyers here indicates that uh, one of the concerns they have is manipulation of the public consultation and fudging of numbers. But there's another side of this too. I got a, re- a couple of emails from folks that said this is just like the people that were opposed to the expressway issue. Uh, they kept going through the courts and dragging it through and looking for full environmental assessments. But there's one very important difference between the two, John. And I know you cover both of these stories extensively. In in the expressway debate, the people that were holding up the project were the government itself uh, that kept asking for this, and 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 one local member, of course, and eventually the environment minister. That's what added to the cost and the delays there. This is not the case. In this case, the government who's looking over this project right now, in this case, the provincial government, they're pushing this. Some would say pushing it on the city, but I mean, you know, be that as it may, that uh, the reality is, is that, for instance, the environment minister, the transportation minister, and the premier are all strong advocates for this. So, not, notwithstanding what's this in, this in this letter, notwithstanding whatever legitimacy there may be to some of these concerns, is this whole thing going to fall on deaf ears because these guys have already made up their mind? 
Well, I, I think that's the more likely outcome. Uh, you know, you have to be realistic. The other big difference between the Red Hill controversy and this controversy was that very early on, uh, when when public opinion polling was done on the Red Hill Expressway, it was overwhelmingly in favor of the yeah. highway. It was, yeah. like, you know, there was something like 17 percent opposed. In this case, you've got 48 to 40 against. And uh, if you if you look at those numbers further. Uh, and talk about people that are likely voters because you get 48 to 40 when you when you do a, a major skew towards millennials. But given millennials' municipal voting habits, the real number is probably more like 60-40 against. So uh, that that's the big difference. Is the public was largely behind Red Hill, and uh, very much uh, not so much uh, in terms of this project. The letter is also suggesting the council could mitigate the impacts of this if they just decided to go back a step or two and reopen the process about BRT. Any chance of that happening? Pretty slim, but, you know, if they did do it, as the, as the writer uh, indicates, the lawyer, he said if they did subject BRT to an honest evaluation, you'd probably get uh, members of council would have a different view than than they currently did. I mean, we know that... Several members of council changed their vote strictly on the issue of not wanting to be blamed for walking away from a billion dollars. Nothing to do with the merits of the project, just straight political cowardice. So, you know, uh, if uh, I, I think really this is going to end up being a political matter, and you're, you're absolutely right. All the ministers concerned are, are pushing for the project. Um, it's it's going to be tough to turn it around. The question is... Uh, what happens when the actual numbers are presented to council uh, in terms of what the real cost is going to be? That that might provide another opportunity for council to deal with it from that standpoint rather than from this environmental issue. But, you know, folks are upset and they're they're spending their own money on lawyers because uh, they feel strongly about it. And they, they, they feel it's uh, not the right thing for Hamilton. There were some councillors, John, that you and you and I talked about this, that exhaled and breathed a sigh of relief after that last city council vote a few weeks ago and say, well, that that's off our plate now. We're not going to have to worry about that with the election, of course, about a year away, the next municipal election. Uh, this indicates to me that uh, this may still be a ballot box issue. What do you think? I, I think it is going to. I, I think ultimately it is going to be a ballot box issue. Uh, now, it will obviously depend on how... Um, uh, whatever candidates emerge at the various levels, it'll it'll certainly depend on how they conduct their campaigns. But certainly, if I was running against an incumbent councillor who had voted in favor of this project, I, I would make it the wedge issue in uh, all of my campaigning. And I suspect that you're going to see some of that. You can check it out on the current issue of uh, the Bay Observer. Of course, it's called Pushing Back Against LRT. Uh, John Best, of course, the publisher of the Bay Observer. John, thanks as always for the time today. Greatly appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.